This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 22, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. At a time when sizable elements of right and left both want restrictions on who gets to speak, defending the rights of those who want to speak requires strategy. At a live Cato Daily Podcast recorded at Cato Club 200 last month, I spoke with Cato's Emily Eakins and John Samples about how people think about freedom of speech and what must be done to effectively protect it. You know, it's a troubling time if you're the CEO of a social media company. Uh, a friend of mine uh, in 2012, it's worth noting that this was in 2012, he was having a conversation with some friends on Twitter, and they were talking about um, great, great movie trilogies. And uh, my friend said simply in response, die hard. And if you can read this below, it says uh, essentially this was... Uh, his account was locked in 2018 and for those two words right there. And I think it gives us a sense of uh, the sensitivity that a lot of social media companies have about what kinds of speech to allow or disallow on their platforms. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube uh, all have removed the conspiracy monger. Uh, Alex Jones from their platforms, along with a bunch of of other people. Uh, And it's it's weird to think of that being uh, a business responsibility. These companies have shareholders, but also a responsibility to people who want to consume these kinds of products and uh, make them uh, useful and not uh, offensive. So to you, John Samples, I'll I'll begin with you. you know, how, how ought we to think about the responsibilities of companies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and these other platforms, large platforms for communication and, and what their role ought to be? Well, first, I think, as always, we need to step back, step back from what is said and who's saying it. And uh, even to allegations about whether there's bias and suppression of speech uh, online. You step back from that. The second thing I was struck in um, in Gene's speech, uh, when he mentioned those three things, three of the four things that have been so important and so long on the Cato website, individual liberty, limited government, uh, and... Free markets. Free markets, right. Free markets also in there. Now, what are the implications of those three principles for what we're dealing with here? What is actually the suppression of speech, not the censorship of speech, but suppression by, say, Facebook or Google, uh, because they do do it. Facebook in particular has a set of community standards that they uh, operationalize and remove speech. It's pretty clear what the implications are. Limit and above all, limited government and individual liberty. That means the government has no role to play here, really. There's no role for government to reach in and say, protect free speech from Mark Zuckerberg, because it's been, there's a long line of, spe- of uh, uh, doctrines and uh, le- legal cases that, s- that say, you know, the First Amendment does not reach to these private forums. But for us as libertarians and for what the Cato Institute has done, I think the other side of it, free markets, is very important, too. After all, 
the, these people who, there are people who own these companies. These are private companies. They have shareholders. They have managers appointed in a way by those shareholders. They are there to make decisions for the, and in general, when we think about that, we think those decisions are best made by the people who are appointed by the owners or in service to the shareholders. So for us particularly, I think we play a unique role here as people who are willing to make the argument that, you know, we support private property and we support it across the board and we support it sometimes when people do things we don't like, right? Um, so that's the core thing. There's no real argument here. And I think this is actually, we have the unique argument about private property, but the free speech argument, the First Amendment argument, it's very clear. There's really no justification for government role here. Now, you're going to hear a lot of things, and right now we're living through a, a kind of a hysterical period. You're going to hear about antitrust. Well, antitrust uh, is to jump now and assume that uh, Facebook and uh, all and Google and so on are going to be that way forever, I think is very much too early to do that. Anything like that or assume that you can use antitrust in a way to protect free speech or something like that. That's really not something that I think we would support in other areas. You hear a lot of talk about fake news, but, you know, the Supreme Court has said the right to be uh, to say false speech is actually protected also. Uh, you hear a lot about hate speech. But again, hate speech is something, however much we might not like it, it's protected by uh, the First Amendment. And I think as libertarians, we would want it to be protected, right? So this, in a sense, is another one of those areas where we have to focus on our principles, which I've mentioned. And the fact that those principles might lead us in directions that we don't like, particularly if people do start um, suppressing speech that we, we don't understand why. I think there's a way out of these dilemmas but clearly, the history of the Cato Institute, our mission is to make these tough calls and to support these principles, even if we don't like the results. So, uh, John, you mentioned that uh, there is no argument, and I agree with you to the extent that I'm convinced. But there is, of course, an argument about uh, what should be tolerated and what should not be tolerated on these platforms and what the role of government uh, actually is. Uh, Emily produced uh, this document here, The State of Free Speech and Tolerance in America. This is uh, the result of the Cato Institute's 2017 Free Speech and Tolerance Survey. We have some, some of these publications out here. And there's some pretty troubling stuff in there, um, Emily. So when it comes to uh, people's opinions uh, and the, the opinions that they want to share or they want to feel comfortable ha even, even possessing uh, certain sets of opinions. What do we know from uh, this survey and some other data? Right. Well, just first, I want to say you know, we obviously completely agree with what John is saying, that government doesn't have a role to play here in regulating what these companies do and don't do with the speech of their customers. But we can also have a conversation about cultivating a society, a set of values that fosters tolerance. And this is outside of what government is or is not doing. We can still have a conversation about, yes, okay, Facebook can censor this kinds of speech, but should it? 
can we have that conversation? And would it be useful to have that conversation? And, and, and how so? Um, so as Caleb mentioned, we conducted um, a major, a national survey to, to understand not just what people think about these issues of not just free speech, but tolerance of political expression, and then also to understand why they think what they think. And one of the most striking results I thought we found was the large share of Americans, a majority, 58% of Americans, feel that the political climate these days prevents them from saying things that they believe because they're afraid others will find them offensive. This means we've got a majority of the population that is unwilling to engage in productive political dialogue, or maybe unproductive at some times, right? <laughs> but they're afraid to share their opinions because they're afraid that they're going to offend others. And what does this lead to? This leads to a culture of self-censorship. Now, something that also really struck me is we looked at these results according to political ideology as self-described. Um, and we see that people in the political middle, the moderates and conservatives, are the most likely to say that they self-censor. But the people on the far left of the political spectrum, they actually felt comfortable sharing their political opinions. And I thought this was really interesting. And I think this tells us a little bit about where cultural dominance lies today. I think this is probably reversed, maybe in the 1960s. So it hasn't always been like this. But this tells us about what types of arguments are not going to be shared. Um, and this is going to be shutting down productive debate if, if most of Americans feel like they can't talk about important political issues. It bubbles up and it boils over. All right. So... Uh, with respect to the kinds of opinions or specific opinions that people uh, are expressing, your, your data seems to indicate that uh, everybody likes free speech until somebody wants to say something. <laughs> right. So everyone, it seems like a majority of Americans, as you can see here in this graph, feel like they can't express their opinions. Well, we have, a, we have some data that explains a little bit why that is. So if you ask people, should people be allowed, should other people be allowed to express offensive opinions in public? People say yes. They, you know, 95% support um, kind of the values of free speech and tolerance of it. But what we wanted to do is get specific. What if we pricked people's deeply held uh, values, would they still support that type of principled commitment to tolerance? Well, no. <laughs> a lot of them for no. There's actually quite a few people that are principled about it, but there were far too many um, that probably uh, were, were not tolerant enough. Um, I just want to show you a couple of examples here. We found that um, a slim majority of Democrats, um, it wasn't just about uh, censoring speech, but they actually supported compelling speech. A slim majority, 51%, would favor a law that would require people use the pronouns that transgender people would prefer them to use. Now, you could say that's the polite thing to do, and I would agree with that. But we're talking about should government compel you to use these pronouns. Um, and it was very shocking that this kind of stood out, that this many people um, on the political left felt like this was a good idea. Um, majorities of Democrats also favored employers of private businesses punishing their employees for publishing or for, for posting opinions on their Facebook pages 
that people might find offensive. Um, and then on the very, very farthest left, we found a slim majority that would um, said it was morally acceptable to punch a Nazi in the face, uh, which was kind of funny. Um, but it's not just on the political left either. It's across the political, all, all, all across the political arena. We found that a slim majority of Republicans say that Americans who burn the American flag should be stripped of their U.S. citizenship, uh, which was, I think, also shocking to a lot of people. I should point out that these things are not in line with what most people think, um, but that there are substantial shares of people who do feel this way. Republic, uh, almost half of Republicans also favored a ban on the building of new mosques or religious buildings. Um, and many favored um, bans on headscarves in public. And so the reason I'm showing you this data is to show that when we get specific and when we prick things that kind of violate people's deeply held values, there are a substantial number of people across the political arena, it's not just on one side or the other, it's willing to try to censor the opinions of other people. And I think if more people saw this and they realized how many people would want to shut their opinions down, maybe they would be a little bit more tolerant of accepting other people's opinions. Uh, John, we uh, it seems that as courts are moving to protect speech more and more uh, culturally, things are moving in the opposite direction. It, that we, when we're talking about speech, we have to think tactically as mm. well about mm. how best to protect uh, a robust, uh, you know, full First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So, what should we what should we think about when we think about tactics to try to protect speech in, in all its forms? So, a couple of things. One, I would first warn against thinking that this is a uniquely bad time. Uh, Emily's profession, Emily's work uh, begins in the 1950s. The University of Michigan, they go out and you get large-scale polling uh, techniques. And they come back, and part of the report is what she just said about that she found also 50 years later, which is, ask people about the First Amendment, almost everyone supports it. Ask them about a teacher with strange or extreme views speaking at the local uh school or something like that, maybe not 50%. So this is something, it's better, I think, to think of the problems we have as kind of persistent. It's bad that it hasn't gotten better, but we shouldn't think that things are getting radically worse. There's sort of something, they're kind of something to cope with. Now, in this case, I think coping means we should be concerned, first of all, that we have that the people who own these private forums and social media have an independent role to play. They have a right, as I've said before, to make these decisions. But I worry a great deal about the following, that in fact, the decisions they make will be as a result of being bullied by government officials. We've already seen some of that on both sides, right? So you would end up with a situation where in fact, and remember also that the social media uh, managers are beyond the First Amendment. You don't have a First Amendment claim against them if they suppress your speech. So what I would really fear is a situation where those social media private owners, private managers are bullied into situations at the behest of public officials to suppress speech. Then you've got the worst of both worlds. You've got a, public officials actually deciding what speech is going to be heard and what's not on social media. And the First Amendment can't play a role. So June 4th of this year, I found myself in the home of Mark Zuckerberg having dinner with about nine or 10 other people, 
By the way, all of them were academics. To my right was a dean from Yale University, and so on. We were, and Mark was there, and we were talking about these issues. I would note, I was the only think tank person there and the, uh, to directly talk to the person who is actually making these kinds of policies. So as it grew near the end, as you might expect, what is it you want to do in that situation? Well, what I thought was, I may never see this guy again in my life. I want to say something to him that I hope he, in the cloud of everything that goes through his life, that he will remember. And what I said to him was, you can do whatever you want to in terms of moderating the content on Facebook, and your managers can do that. However, it's important that you do it for your reasons, for the reasons of Facebook, for the reasons of the business, or whatever, and that you not do it because you've been bullied into doing it because of some government official, some member of Congress. And then I said, there's nothing that's more important than this, that you do that. I was, I should tell you, also very um, encouraged by the fact that early on in, in the dinner, he said something along the lines of, we don't want fake news on our platform because our customers don't want fake news. They don't come to our platform to hear things that aren't true. Now, there's problems with uh, suppressing fake news, but what I liked was the mindset. It wasn't fake news is bad or fake news helps the Republicans or the Democrats or any of that. It was our customers don't want that. I think we're in much better shape with a business person running these forums, even though at times, as with Facebook, they will suppress what they call and think of as hate speech, so the protections will be narrower than they are under the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, the, the First Amendment is sort of a grand bargain for everybody that the only thing it asks for really is tolerance. That is, it, when you put Facebook in charge of deciding what speech uh, is allowed on their platform, that's a one, it's an uncomfortable position for a company that wants to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Emily, you have data indicates, of course, Americans don't agree what is offensive at all. And so uh, to have Facebook then uh, be judging content, even on an individual basis or, or Google or whatever platform, that's also a really expensive endeavor. And uh, as you saw with the, the tweet from my friend, uh, you know, these platforms pay a price on their own platforms for having, uh, having suppressed speech that was stupid or ill-advised or a joke or uh, com referring to something completely different. Well, there's a difference between what they have a right to do, which was what I was talking to him about, because that was the most important thing that he make that, that opinion independently. When I, if you ask me, what I think you should do, I, th I think you should do a broad, and I worry about the uh, community standards of Facebook. Uh, I, want, I worry somewhat about private gatekeepers reestablishing themselves. But again, we come back to this principle, those three parts of the Cato uh, uh, ideas, they really point in one direction. What we can do though, I think it's important to help to make sure that these and argue uh, on behalf of a broad conception of freedom of speech that they're enforcing, and that also their independence, and that they we help them in dialogue with them, that that independent judgments gain uh, legitimacy. Because the choices really are, I think, uh, the government will get involved if the independent private content moderation doesn't gain legitimacy with the larger society. It already has, I would suspect, 
uh, legitimacy with everyone in this room or almost everyone. But not everyone yet believes the same things we do. Uh, and it's important that it gain legitimacy with everyone. Then you have a real limit on government getting involved in this area. Uh, Emily, what do we know about uh, what Americans find offensive as, quick, <laughs> as quickly as you can? We're, right. I mean, as John was talking about this, I was thinking about the practicalities. So, yes, Facebook is allowed to decide, and it should be allowed to decide what kind of speech it will tolerate on its platform. But we have some data that might be useful for Facebook to see why it might be a little bit impractical to try to police too strongly the speech that they allow on their platform. So when it comes to trying to police speech, whether it be through the state or through a business or even through our friendships, we have to keep one very important thing in mind. We can't agree what is offensive. I think a lot of us just kind of assume to some degree or another that most people share our kind of sense of what is offensive and what is not. And what this survey really showed is that's just not the case. So as you can see on this slide, we asked about a variety of different opinions that are pretty widely held by many people, and many of which are, are like just policy positions that you may agree with or you may disagree with. So I want to point out two in particular. Um, the idea that illegal immigrants should be deported. You may disagree with this position, but would you call this hate speech? Well, as it turns out, almost 80%, about 80% of um, Democrats believe that this is tantamount to hate speech or offensive speech to espouse this policy position. But only about a third of Republicans agree. This is just, for, for many Republicans, this is just a policy position that you agree or disagree with. But for Democrats, this is the same as hate speech. Um, the same idea about women fighting in military combat roles. Now, on the other side, when we asked the idea, uh, if someone were to say the police are racist, we find that conservatives find this, they're more likely to say that this is hateful or offensive speech than liberals. Um, and so what this really shows is that we can't agree on what's, what, uh, what speech is offensive. And if we try to police it, it's going to be just impractical to do that. Uh, when I, uh, Sally mentioned The Coddling of the American Mind, the book by uh, Greg Lukianoff, uh, I had him on the Cato Daily Podcast recently. I'll commend that to you, <laughs> although we did talk mostly about parenting because we are both parents multiple times over a fairly recent vintage. And um, we, you know, we're talking about raising robust young people. And how do we, how do, we do that? What are, what are the things that we need to do and, and more pointedly not do in order to have uh, children who are capable, who are resilient, who are able to interact in the world with uh, confidence and, and uh, be full, you know, full humans, to be good uh, reasonable people. Uh, and one of the things that he noted uh, in his research is that between 2011 and 2013, something sort of changed on college campuses. And the idea is that, well, uh, the, you know, for a long time, the, the suppression of speech on campus was coming from the top down. It was an, an administrative remedy that uh, colleges were doing just to, to try to keep the peace, but also suppress uh, some reasonable protest. He said around 2011 to 2013, that began to change. And he began to see a whole lot more students who were actively interested in uh, restricting the speech, not just of others, but of themselves. 
So, John, you have something? Uh, yeah, it's interesting to me as you were saying that about the podcast. You know, Cato, there's a Cato uh, adjunct scholar named Brian Kaplan who wrote an entire book that was against all of this, right? The argument was parental nurturing doesn't matter at all, and here's all of this evidence. Now, I'm not going to try to settle with that one way or the other. <laughs> My point being, he's a Cato adjunct scholar. We have also these people that are our friends making the other argument. I mean, I think as donors to the Cato Institute and then compare it to the so many college campuses now, you should be very proud that you have uh, fostered an atmosphere where it's really, we have lots of arguments about stuff. We're not many hands, one mind at all at Cato. And I think that's a problem at the universities. But again, at the universities, you often face the same issue that I was talking about with social media. Uh, they are beyond and should be beyond uh, the call of government. Many of them are publicly funded. Uh, and many of them on the private side make promises that you can hold them to, which is what Greg and uh, John are, are doing. Uh, but again, it's, it's going to be a matter of persuasion. And we're, we're bringing out a book about what colleges can concretely do inside by a person with immense experience at the University of Wisconsin named Donald Downs what can, can concretely be done on this. But, you know, to me, when I go out, I feel Cato really shows the way here. We have differences. We have arguments. We have debates. We have them at the drop of the hat. And you should be proud that you have brought into existence that kind of institution, I think. Well, after that refreshing uh, thought there, John, uh, the the story on college campuses, to return <laughs> to that, Emily is a... Uh, not quite as uh, hopeful. Uh, tell us what we know about campus speech and uh, students' willingness to tolerate alternative views. Right. Well, I mean, to John's point, if only college campuses could foster this kind of tolerance of different opinions, um, which is what you would have expected on a college campus. Um, we had a, a, a component to our survey where we examined specifically attitudes about campus speech. And as you know, you know, some campuses are publicly funded, so they are governed by the First Amendment, but other campuses are private, and so they're allowed to suppress speech if they want to. But again, we wanted to get at the normative, the, is this a good idea? Um, for college campuses. And so we wanted to find out what people thought, what types of peak speakers people thought should be allowed to speak at a college campus in their area. And the list that you see on this slide here, I've taken from actual speakers, almost all of them were actual speakers that were shut down on college campuses in the United States over the past uh, three to four years. And some of them are people that um, are actual people like Bill Mayer that have said these things that are offensive to try to get, an, get a sense of how much are kind of the regular Americans willing to shut down speakers on college campuses that they find offensive. So it's not just about the students. We're asking about, we're asking all Americans what they think. Um, and we find that about half of Americans on all these different issues that we asked about said that these speakers should not be allowed to speak. And I'd like to draw your attention to two speakers in particular. One is a speaker who says the police are justified in stopping African-Americans in higher rates. So this is Heather McDonald at the Manhattan Institute, and she makes this argument based on her particular interpretation of the data. So she is defending police stopping practices. She was shut down at the Claremont, uh, at the Claremont College as students chanted that she was a threat to their existence for her to make these uh, claims. 
Now, on the other side, we find that about 50% of Americans say that a person sh um, shouldn't be allowed to criticize the police either. Now, let's say we were college administrators and we gave in to any substantial share of students or faculty members who found any particular idea offensive or beyond the pale. We would effectively shut down people who are defending the police and people who are criticizing the police. How could you possibly have an, a productive conversation about policing, police reform, if we're too afraid to defend or criticize the police? So what do we do? We just don't talk about it. And nothing changes. And things just continue the way they are. And I think no one thinks that that's a good idea. And I think seeing this, this chart right here really demonstrates why we need to let speakers speak on campus, speak in public, be on Twitter <laughs> and on Facebook, even if we don't like what they have to say. Um, because for every person you think is beyond the pale, someone that you might like, someone else may think is beyond the pale. John Samples is a vice president at the Cato Institute, and Emily Eakins directs polling at Cato. Please take a moment to rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.